What is a democracy? Is America a democracy? Why did Plato say democracies are doomed to tyranny? Is America doomed to tyranny? College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. On this episode of the Magnus Podcast, John and Larissa chat with special guest Pavlos Papadopoulos about Tocqueville's great work, Democracy in America. Pavlos Papadopoulos is Assistant Professor of Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College. He holds a BA in Liberal Arts from St. John's College, as well as an MA and PhD in Politics from the Institute of Philosophic Studies at the University of Dallas. But now, without further ado, crack yourself a cold American beer and enjoy this three beers conversation with John, Larissa, and Pavlos about all things America. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Magnus podcast for a very special episode. Three beers with me, John Johnson, my trusty sidekick, AMI's director of marketing, Larissa Kraft, and a very special guest, senior fellow in the Albertus Magnus Institute and professor of something at Wyoming Catholic College, Pavlos Papadopoulos, the famous. Your, your students love you, man. How you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing very well, especially, especially when I'm being flattered. Thank you for, for that. Oh, it's easy. I, I, when I was out there in Wyoming, you were, you were a celebrity. Uh, really, before we get started, we're talking about uh, de Tocqueville's democracy in America today and drinking beer. I didn't know, you know, usually I'll have a nice, you know, beer in Nursey or something, something very, uh, some beautiful beer. But because of the, the theme today. I thought I would have myself a Coors Light banquet. You went the and, American beer route as opposed to the French beer route. That's probably well, the but right I thing. have a Bordeaux glass and I'm going to pour go. it in okay. a Bordeaux glass. <laughs> That's how you drink a Coors Light banquet. Very good. You have a beer, right, Larissa? I do have a beer. You have me. a great job. I do show. have a great job. <laughs> <That's> correct. <laughs> so, so Pavlos, before we talk about uh, de Tocqueville, which I'm excited about. I'm excited about your class upcoming this summer in the fellowship. Why is Wyoming Catholic so awesome? Uh, when I, when I went out there, it's a flavor of student and energy in the air, but something's pretty cool about that place. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is it in your opinion? I suppose three things, uh, the people, the place, and the fact that we're right about everything. Uh, the people are great. I mean, it's just wonderful to have joyful students who are excited to learn and colleagues who I can really call colleagues that I'm collegial with and who I'm really friends with. Um, it's a it's a small, tight-knit community where there's a real um, assent to agreement on uh, the beautiful thing that we're doing and, and agreement that uh, if we want to cultivate virtue in ourselves, uh, in our students, we need to sort of live in community and pursue a common good together. 
um, we happen to be in a beautiful place or not just happen to be, but we choose to be in a really beautiful place in the mountains of the, um, in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains in central Wyoming. Uh, you could just see the mountains right from town. We're in a small, uh, small town in Wyoming called Lander. And our students spend a lot of time out uh, in the woods, in the mountains. They have a 21-day backpacking trip uh, before they start their freshman year. And then every semester, instead of a fall or spring break, they have an outdoor trip where they go on a variety of, of different kind of adventures, uh, rock climbing, kayaking, um, uh, mountaineering, canyoneering, and so on. And so we, we live in a beautiful area. We work in a beautiful area. We take advantage of that as an integral part of our curriculum. And then finally, as I said, we're, we're right about everything, or at least we're right about the most fundamental thing. Um, what I think makes Wyoming Catholic really um, unique, even in the very small field of uh, Catholic liberal arts, higher education, and then especially in the larger field of education, uh, is that I think our program is really based on a correct view of what a human being is. Um, we are uh, not only minds kind of trapped in bodies, but we're not minds trapped in bodies. We're actually unities nice of body and soul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I need a little heresy bell to go off if I say anything wrong here. Um, we, we're, we're a unity of body and soul. Um, this is what the great philosophic tradition uh, going back to Aristotle teaches. And this is also what um, the church and we're a Catholic college um, teaches as well or affirms as well about, about what a human being is. And so we uh, address our education to that reality, to the fact that we're not just minds that need to be uh, cultivated. We're not even just minds that need to be cultivated in a well-rounded way in the sense of you should study a lot of different disciplines, but we are minds that are part of a soul that is itself uh, bound up with a body. And so we try to educate the mind as well as the body. And so we have a kind of what Plato calls a gymnastic and poetic education, as well as a intellectual or, or philosophical education. That's a beautiful thing. And uh, there's a certain primal ruggedness that is unearthed in these students, regardless of what background they're coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, it hardens them in a very good way, sort of hardens the body and softens the heart. And so That's even, right. even the more delicate students, I, I knew a few kids who before they were in college and then they, they went out to Wyoming Catholic and they were not, they were not the most rugged of individuals, but uh, they certainly came back that way. And so it's beautiful Testament to the transformative and actualizing power of a college like yours. And really there's only, there's only one Wyoming Catholic. I don't think anybody else is doing it exactly how you guys are doing it. So kudos. Yeah. And, and though another way of putting that, or if you want to get fancy about it, uh, Plato in the Republic talks about how we have a three, three parts in our soul. We've got sort of the intellectual part is the highest, the desiring part is the lowest, but then in between there's something called thumos in Greek or spiritedness. And that's the part that is sort of the seat of courage and also of, of anger and of, of dignity. And Plato in the Republic says that it needs to be cultivated through gymnastic education. You're not going to cultivate that just through arguments or just through uh, learning of a kind of intellectual kind. And we really try to cultivate that here through things like horsemanship that all our students take and through our outdoor program. And I think that really spills over into their, their lives as a whole and to the classroom producing exactly what, what you said you observed. Yeah, that's right on the money. And, and I think students of that age particularly have this innate desire to unleash their thumos, right? And mm -hmm. so at, 
at lesser colleges that that is manifest in uh, flamboyant frat parties and sort of everything that makes up that stereotypical meat grinder that is college. Mm-hmm. And and you guys have a genuine outlet and cultivation for the thumos, and it makes beautiful humans. That's that's the goal. That's what we're aiming at. Good job. Let's talk about America. Uh, where do I start? There's all this talk about our democracy and saving our democracy and threats to our democracy. Mm-hmm. And you're going to teach a course in the fellowship, which I think. Uh, registration is now open as of taping this and it's almost full uh, just after one or two days of, of uh, pre-registration here. So the course is called democracy in America and Tocqueville just give us the um, you know, you've heard of cliff's notes, which is like a reduction mm-hmm. of a text. I've, I've heard of this as some kind of rumor. I've never seen. I know. One. I know you've never, <laughs> you've never participated. I'm sure. Absolutely. Give us the, uh, shall we say, the Kyle's notes, like an even more reduced <laughs> uh, version of, of de Tocqueville's Democracy in America for those of our listeners who haven't had the joy of reading it yet. Sure. Uh, almost 200 years ago, a French aristocrat named Alexis de Tocqueville came to America with a friend of his, spent about nine months traveling out around America, went home to France and wrote over the next seven or eight years, 600 pages about it. Uh, and that's the book that we know as Democracy in America, published in two volumes, one in 1835, the next in 1840. Uh, and what he did in there is he looked at America, at America and he said, uh, this is where we are tending. This is where we, France and Europe and the whole Christian universe um, are tending. We are tending towards a democracy and what he means by democracy is not necessarily a representative government where you had sort of free and fair regular elections, uh, these kinds of offices, certain rights given to citizens and so on. Uh, what he means by America is a society in which everyone sees themselves as roughly equal. Uh, it's really a social and economic term, much more so than a political term for, for uh, Tocqueville. Uh, So it doesn't have any necessary connection to a constitution of one form or another. Instead, it's the um, opposite of aristocracy. And so Tocqueville says, we in the 19th century are uh, living through this great revolution, the democratic revolution, which is in which an aristocratic culture is being replaced by a a democratic culture. Uh, We in Europe can look at America as a kind of cautionary tale and maybe a cause for hope and inspiration as well. Uh, so he, he tries to bring back to France what he saw in America. And he says uh, that he confesses that uh, in America, I saw more than America. I sought there an image of democracy itself, of its pensions, its character, its prejudices, its passions. I wanted to become acquainted with it, with democracy as it appears in America, only if only to know at least what we ought to hope or fear from it. So Tocqueville says we have been moving towards a more egalitarian society for centuries, for so long, and it seems like every event in French history, European history, Western history has been contributing to breaking down class divides, breaking down the divide between the the, the peasant and the nobleman and the king, 
Um, so much so that it seems like it must be God's providence. It must be part of his plan somehow uh, that, that we move in this, in this direction. But Tocqueville says, it's not clear whether this is a holy good or holy bad thing. In fact, there seem to be a lot of pros and cons mixed together in this move away from a hierarchical society towards an egalitarian society. So Tocqueville, he's writing, sorry, he's yeah. writing right, uh, basically a generation after the French Revolution. Is that right? Or a generation after the American Constitution was formed? Yeah, a couple. So 1830s, so okay. the French Revolution, 1789, and following. Tocqueville, I think it's an uncle of his, or maybe a great uncle, is actually executed during the French Revolution. So he comes from a sort of minor uh, aristocratic family in France, and he has seen, uh, and, and actually at at his time, it's. Uh, in France, France has gone through various republics in the reign of terror and then Napoleon. And then that uh, Napoleon was, of course, defeated several times. And there was a kind of royalist restoration uh, for over a decade that ends uh, right, right in, his, in his time when he's writing this book. And so it's really up in the air whether France is going to continue to try to reassert its old aristocratic regime or take one form or another of a new democratic regime. And Tocqueville says, we need help because what we have wow. gone through in France is the most traumatic version of this democratic revolution. And over there on the other side of the Atlantic, they have, again, for better or for ill, created a democratic society, but certainly for better in the sense that they didn't have to go through a traumatic revolution to get there. It was just kind of a, just America has grown in a democratic fashion since the first colonists, colonists landed. And so it's, um, a kind of case study for things that you can look forward to at, with anticipation or with fear uh, in America. And so would you say he has a more favorable opinion of the American way of attempting democracy than the French revolution way? Absolutely. And Tocqueville actually doesn't put very much stock in or doesn't, doesn't focus on the American revolution very much. Uh, as an event, he takes a more, you could say, a sociological approach, uh, which sees sort of the customs that have been in America since the 17th century colonies, colonies were planted, um, being continuous with the way America is up to his time in the 1830s. Mm. Um, and so because it's not a political history, because it's kind of a study of American society as it exists, he says the remarkable thing about America is you could, it's a society that we could see being born. We, we know when it started. We know who started it. It's not like France or Russia or India or Japan, where its origins are lost in the midst of time. Instead, you can study it from the beginning. And, and that's what he does in, the, in this work and then draws out the consequences from this great equality of conditions in America and traces the consequences through family life, through politics, uh, through how American military works, uh, through how American industry works. I mean, really through every realm of life in, in the United States at the time. One of the reasons I love this book is that it's, it's chock full of strange insights, sometimes prophecies, um, that, and, and really diagnoses of how every, every aspect of American life, which is to say every aspect of life that we sort of take for granted as the norm before we become uh, inquisitive and critical and realize that there are other ways of doing things than the way that we live. He shows how all of those things that we take for granted are traced back to in some way or another to the fact that we have this egalitarian culture from the beginning. Hmm. Well, I was sitting here listening to you talk about the French revolution and I was wondering 
America was also started by a revolution. So what was the difference? Why do we look at America without you look at it differently than you look at the French Revolution? But I think you answered it in saying that it's because you can pinpoint the beginning. Is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah. And and Tocqueville would say America was started by the Puritans, uh, or at least part of America was started by the Puritans. And then another part of America was started by a somewhat more aristocratic settlement in Virginia. And then those colonies from, again, the 1600s developed, and they developed um, different cultures than one another. He, he has really interesting insights on the difference between the North and the South. And this is, again, about 30 years before the Civil War. He takes a trip down the Ohio River, and he just says, I look to the right and I see Ohio. I look to the left and I see Kentucky. And I can tell the difference in the cultures of those states by just the condition of the land. Because wow. one is a really um, sort of proto-capitalist, striving commercial society where everyone has to earn their own keep. And so there's a lot of industry and activity uh, on the right bank uh, in Ohio. And then the other is this very quiet, almost medieval still society in some ways because it's a slave economy. And so there are significant differences in the different parts of America, but he doesn't he doesn't chalk everything up to 1776 or 1787 to 89. It's instead starting with the 16 teens and 1620s, right? Uh, when um, when the Puritans came to Massachusetts, when uh, others uh, came came to Virginia, and then the, all of those colonies were settled. What characterizes them, for the most part, is uh, a relatively high level uh, standard of living, even in those uh, very impoverished times of sort of living on the frontier. Everything's a frontier in 1640s Massachusetts. But the fact that it was a middle-class settlement coming over for the most part, those who settled, uh, they had the ability to uh, to pay for passage across across the Atlantic. They came uh, with not just men, but but with their, their wives and their children. Um, it was a very religiously inflected and religiously informed society, again, especially in, in Massachusetts from the beginning. He says that they, they embarked upon this journey for an intellectual reason or for a spiritual reason in order to try to create sort of a holy society, a godly society um, in, in Massachusetts and then New England and the rest of the country. And so it's a very, it's a very, and it's a very democratic society. So it's, it's also egalitarian. There's, especially in the, the churches in, in New England, um, Democratic self-governance is just a, a feature of spiritual life as well as political life. And all of that, he traces back to these kind of socioeconomic factors that are there uh, at the root. He seems uh, extremely objective when it comes to telling you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what came before democracy, right? So there, there was, there was uh, you know, clear ruler and rules. It was clear that there were different classes. But with that came a sort of virtual virtue. And then there's a virtue of obedience among the poor and a virtue of nobility among the rich and democracy after the revolutions at their worst sort of eliminate those distinctions, but also eliminate the capacity for their respective virtues. That's right. Can can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, so I don't think, so Tocqueville does not despair and he does not counsel despair. He says, this is an, an inevitability. I can look back through, as he does in the introduction to democracy in America, I can look back through 700 years of French history and recognize that every major historical event tends towards dissolving hierarchy and enabling equality. 
but I recognize that there are trade-offs involved. Um, maybe a contemporary way of putting it is that uh, there seems to be greater respect for human dignity as it exists in every man and woman uh, in a democratic age, but there are less opportunities for glory, less opportunities for the, the heights of human achievement. And so there's a kind of leveling effect in a democratic society that Tocqueville is wary about. Um, and he, he spells this out actually later towards the end of volume one. Uh, if you'll indulge me, I'll just read about a page of this because one of the other joys of Tocqueville is that he's just such a fun writer, yes. an engaging stylist. So here he's going to hold up democracy and aristocracy and lay out uh, the best good that each one has to offer. Uh, he says, this is, uh, he says, what do you ask of society and its government? We must understand each other. Do you want to give a certain loftiness to the human spirit, a generous way of viewing the things of the world? Do you want to inspire in men a sort of contempt for material goods? Do you desire to give birth to or to maintain profound convictions and to prepare for great devotions? Is it a question for you of polishing mores, of elevating manners, of making the arts shine? Do you want poetry, renown, glory? Do you intend to organize a people in such a manner as to act strongly on all others? Do you destine it to attempt great undertakings and whatever may be the result of its efforts to leave an immense mark on history? If this is, according to you, the principal object that men ought to propose for themselves in society, do not take the government of democracy. It would surely <laughs> not lead to that goal. But if it seems to you useful to turn the intellectual and moral activity of man to the necessities of material life and to employ it in producing well-being, if reason appears to you to be more profitable to men than genius, if your object is not to create heroic virtues but peaceful habits, if you would rather see vices than crimes, and if you prefer to find fewer great actions on condition that you will encounter fewer enormities, if instead of acting within a brilliant society, it is enough for you to live in the midst of a prosperous society, if finally the principal object of a government, according to you, is not to give the most force or the most glory possible to the entire body of the nation, but to procure the most well-being for each of the individuals who compose it, and to have each avoid the most misery, then equalize conditions and constitute the government of a democracy. And then he concludes, if there is no longer time to make a choice, and if a force superior to man already carries you along towards one of the two governments without consulting your desires, seek at least to derive from it all the good that it can do. And knowing its good instincts as well as its evil penchants, strive to restrict the effects of the latter and develop the former. Mm. I think that exemplifies what, what you mentioned that he tries to be as objective as possible. I do think there's a judgment involved here. I do think there's what is a it? kind of tragic undertone yeah, uh, to Tocqueville's optimism. What's that? Spo spoiler alert, but where does he land? Yes. Uh, he lands in, I think, something great was lost with the passing of the aristocratic age. And that great thing was the cultivation of human greatness. Mm. And so we need to find a way to engineer that. We need to find a way to protect it wherever it exists. We need to find a way to combat the worst of democratic prejudices that would seek to give everyone a sort of participation trophy instead of giving some gold, some silver, some bronze, and a lot of people nothing at all. Um, we need to sort of carve out spaces wherever possible to preserve those um, aristocratic remnants. And we also need to find genuinely democratic modes of preserving liberty. 
yeah. in this time. Because one of the great threats is that is what we today call groupthink, that Tocqueville recognizes when everyone is on a level with everyone else in a sort of social and economic sense, it's natural for us. There's a kind of democratic logical fallacy that whatever the opinion poll says is correct. Uh, so instead of looking to the genius uh, for insight on a specific matter, Tocqueville says democratic peoples just have a knee-jerk reaction to sort of prefer whatever the most people say. And so there's a tendency in democracies to just fall prey to not only shoddy thinking, but lack of sort of discernment and moral judgment and aesthetic judgment. And so the arts suffer, um, morality in certain ways suffers, uh, and the intellect suffers. And we, we don't seem to have geniuses instead. We merely have reason that kind of ca- can calculate through things and, and anyone can do that. I know you're pretty big on Plato also, and I think it's in the Republic, right? Where Plato basically describes that democracies will crumble into some sort of tyranny inevitably. And is de Tocqueville on the same wavelength as far as the entropic nature of all government, particularly democracy, or does he think these things are salvageable in different ways? Yeah, he doesn't think that it's inevitable that a democracy will become a tyranny. Um, He does think that we have passed, and this is, again, using the terms in slightly different ways, but passed from aristocracy to a democratic age. But we've got to actually um, imagine sort of a Cartesian coordinate system. He doesn't say that himself, but there are multiple independent variables. So on the one hand, we're passing from an aristocratic age to a democratic age. On the other hand, there's an independent variable, which is liberty and despotism. And so Tocqueville says you could have in the aristocratic Middle Ages of Europe, you could have a uh, aristocratic order that conduces to liberty, or you could have one that is despotic. And it's the same in democracy. So he actually lays out the examples of the United States in the 19th century and Russia in the 19th century. He says these are both both thoroughly democratic um, uh, nations. One, however, is democratic in a way that preserves liberties for for human beings. Um, And the other is one is democratic but crushes liberty. He says they're both democratic because in the United States, everyone is equal to one another. In Russia, everyone is equal to one another. They're all slaves, except for the Tsar, who's sort of absolute. And so they're both roughly democratic. And so he, this is one of his prophetic passages. He actually anticipates the 20th century as a great conflict between uh, what, what you could call in a very specific sense, liberal democracy and despotic democracy between the United States. And he doesn't know about the Soviet Union yet, but Soviet Russia as wow. the emblem of democracy in the worst possible sense. And, and France seems to be teetering on the edge between those. It's experienced the reign of terror during the French Revolution, but maybe there's a chance for it to recover something from its aristocratic past to shore up liberty and navigate these inevitably democratic times in a better way. How, who does he think is going to win that, that the showdown? Or he doesn't pass say, judgment on that. He just he says, this is, this is what's coming. And, and so it really could go either way. He, he puts a great deal of, of stock in human agency. He says that, um, you know, providence has, has traced around man uh, limits that we cannot in any way violate. We cannot go beyond. But within that space, we are left free. And so it's, there's really a great deal of exhortation in this work to learn from the mistakes of democratic nations, learn from the successes of democratic nations, and steer your nation or your time towards uh, uh, a way of living that will preserve what is best in humanity 
preserve the possibility of excellence and avoid despotism. Okay, so right now America is at a certain crossroads, and it seems like uh, the two options for De Tocqueville would be, you know, the the entropic uh, reducing to rubble, right, or tyranny, or sort of a return to some sort of aristocratic infusion. I'm I'm probably the last kid on the block to be reading uh, right now Reno's Return of the Strong Gods. Mm, sure. Have you, are you reading this thing? Are you? Have I have. You I have not read it. I've heard good things about it. Though. Yeah, it's it's good. Um, but but basically, there there is this innate call that that this primal urge for us to return some sort of uh, aristocratic leadership. I'm not doing it justice, but. Sure. That's that's happening, right? We're you know the the Trumps of the world, uh, you know the strong men, not really the the most beautiful in the sense of Kalos, uh, mm-hmm. but but the strongest, right? Um, and then, but then also there's there's just these this utter chaos and civil breakdown that could be happening as well. Mm-hmm. Where do you think we are as a democracy? Can I put in it in Tocqueville's terms? Yeah, into Tocqueville's terms. I think, so one of the things that I've realized recently and that makes me all the more interested to go back to Tocqueville this summer is when Tocqueville writes this book, he's looking at France and he's saying, uh, we French have started to go in the wrong direction. Uh, One of the major ways in which France has gone in the wrong direction is through centralization of administration. So Tocqueville's, he writes a whole different book called The Old Regime and the Revolution, which is about the lead up to the French Revolution. And his argument there is that uh, under the French kings in the 18th century, France destroyed many of its um, feudal liberties. It destroyed what actually made it an aristocratic, a liberal aristocratic society. And it centralized all power at Versailles under the kings. And then the French revolutionaries cut off the king's head and just replaced the king with the people or sort of the people uh, despotically manifested. Um, And so... Tocqueville laments the erosion of local liberties, the erosion of decentralization. He thinks that local government, whether it's in a kind of aristocratic mode or democratic mode, is good for human beings. It draws them out of their private lives. It makes them concerned with their neighbor, and it preserves liberties in in all kinds of different ways. And so in the 1830s, when Tocqueville writes Democracy in America, he says to his fellow Frenchmen, look, America is decentralized and America is democratic. It's possible to do things that way. And that's, that's the way to preserve liberty. We, the audience, right? His main audience, the French of the 1830s, have become more centralized than they ought to. And, and that's why they're at such risk for despotism. Just real quick, is that, is that really the distinction between a republic in the American sense and the democracy in the French sense? Uh, like our democracy is not an absolute democracy. That's right. That's right. So because we're a sort of federal republic with significantly decentralized authority down to your local local towns, local yeah. school boards. Well, and so down on. to the family, right? We're a government of governments. We're a mm-hmm. society of societies. That's right. At the bedrock of which is the most fundamental society. So that if Yeah. It, and so you, you, you see this manifested person. in, you know, every time there's a hurricane in Louisiana, you hear about the Cajun Navy, right? These guys kind of come out in their John boats. They sort of go through all the flooded parishes in Louisiana and rescue their neighbors and so on. And they don't wait around for FEMA or for whoever. This yeah. is a great testament. This is the sort of thing that Tocqueville would recognize as quintessentially American, that 
uh, we're a kind of get her done people. We take care of ourselves and we organize locally because we're all equal and in a, in a democracy, we're all very weak on our own, but it's our capacity for organizing that, that um, sort of vivifies society and, and invigorates it. Uh, the, the thing that's really striking to me though, in returning to democracy in America, is that I think we have become significantly more like his original French audience than yes, the America that he described. And so I think actually it's really exciting to read this now because we've become more like his primary audience instead of the topic, the subject that he's writing about. It's now Tocqueville is telling, um, Tocqueville, instead of telling the sort of overly centralized, despotically tending French of the 1830s about America as a sort of example, he's telling 21st century Americans <laughs> who are overly, you know, tending towards centralization, tending towards despotism that comes with it about our past, about the way we used to be. And so I'm, I'm really excited to, to see what Tocqueville will teach me this time around, now that I'm thinking about it in, in those cat- categories, now that I'm realizing that every time um, you have, well, to take a recent example, um, it's not just a matter of the Department of Education in Washington, D.C. telling every every school, every state what to do with education. It's right. It's the Department of Agriculture saying, unless you have these bathroom rules, you won't get federal funding for, for meals. This is something that happened within the last week. Um, and so it's really the sort of the tentacles of the central authority, which Tocqueville would have recognized in Paris and in France, extending out into all the provinces. Uh, right. We're becoming and he, more does, like- he does say, right, that the the nobility that's stripped from the aristocrats is really given to the government. That's right. uh, Ultimately. And that's, that's another pitfall that we have to really watch out for. Like you're not, you're not just getting rid of this superior class. You're you're Mm -hmm. just centralizing it, which can be more dangerous. So the, the familiar advice that Tocqueville would give Americans is you all know how to organize, you know, how to create voluntary associations. You, You know how to create sort of political action communities or just clubs, uh, you know how to found your own charter schools, you know how to sort of organize at the parish level or in your churches or, or whatever it is, um, do that. That's that's one way to go. The aristocratic version would be look to some great man who's going to stand between the commoner and the king, look to a noble, look to a baron, something like that. And and we in America are kind of caught between these two yes. modes because we have, um, you know, Elon Musk, for example, as like the oligarch who's swooping in and perhaps offsetting some of the centralized mob um, and perhaps shielding the people. But it seems better and or at least it seems more authentically American to rely on um, the organized action of many Democratic citizens who who look to their neighbors and say, we have common interests, we have common values. We need to organize it together. We'll be strong in resisting some kind of overweening central authority. Yeah, we do look to the great men. But we also have this weird awareness that we could become the great man. I, I mean, I mean, we we're af- we, like Elon Musk save us, but uh, also we 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 sort of strive to be Elon Musk, which isn't really possible in an old aristocracy. So that's I'd say that's like that's point American democracy as far as the, <laughs> we're the keeping the, keeping track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you think, Larissa? I'm thinking so many things. <laughs> I know, right? It should be <laughs> way more than an hour, but yeah. I know. When open another Coors Light banquet. Go for it. Very aristocratic of you. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't know that type of beer might be bringing us all down to oh, the, 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 the playing yeah. field. Um, but when John was talking about, you know, Plato's fear 
of the democracy can lead to tyranny if not done properly. I was thinking, oh boy, that might be where America is heading. You can see it in our schools. Um, but then what you said about how this is written for America now, um, even though it was written for France, that's who we are now. It was very hopeful, right? To go back and read it again with that perspective of that we we can still, you know, we're not done for. This is optimistic. We we have hope and we can we can all rise to it. You know, we can all be Elon Musk if we want to be. But I think that American dream is still there. Yeah. And again, one of the great assets that Tocqueville offers us is that he doesn't flatter us. Right. A best a best friend is going to be one who who gives you honest criticism and honest uh, approval, but never flattery. Um, unlike you at the beginning of the episode, John. Um, and so uh, what Tocqueville does is he points out our greatest weaknesses or the greatest weaknesses of an egalitarian society. Um, and so I think we need to know ourselves in the strength of knowing our flaws and our, our, our worst tendencies if we're going to correct for them, if we're going to guard against them. And, and this is another, this is just one of the reasons that Tocqueville is so valuable is that he has insight into the relative goods and relative evils, all of those trade-offs that come with an egalitarian society. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating to me about this book is that his, his perspective, right? Democracy is, is, is like older than Plato as Plato writes about it, but he's, he's also seeing this very interesting period in history when we have the nativity of a new world order, uh, a shifting to a, a democratic world war. And the one thing that we, I think right now can compare it to, uh, if you're familiar with any of the tech revolutions happening right now, but it's, it's the web three movement, right? The democratization of the internet and the democratization of currency. So Mm -hmm. Bitcoin is like this weird thing that's now being currency is now being democratized. And for de Tocqueville, he's, he's watching government being democratized in a sort of parallel stage. Um, do you think that shakes out as far as an analogy goes, or is that, is that crazy talk? Uh, I, it, it might. I myself am too invested in, in hard reality to uh, understand Bitcoin, huh? Bitcoin or yeah, to have explored yeah. it. Um, but yeah, there's certainly those, those stages of sort of centralization and decentralization and democratization that, that he's very concerned with. Um, and, and again, he, I think, I think Tocqueville, if he knew about Bitcoin, um, I'm not sure how exactly he would judge it, but I think he'd say at least that's typically American. <laughs> it's adventurous oh, and yes. it's aimed at, so it's, it's bold in the way that Americans settling, settling the frontier are very bold or just crossing the Atlantic to settle the coasts are very bold. Um, but it's, but it's also a kind of, it relies on collective action. It relies on voluntarily associating with one another and in a kind of decentralized way, and it's at least aiming at, again, I don't understand it well enough to make judgment, but it's at least aiming at greater um, independence and individual autonomy and control over, over currency. I think he would look at that and say, only in America. <laughs> so would someone yeah. come up with this idea? Yeah. Does, does he note the, the difference and in degree of influence uh, of the classics and of, of the ancients? on the respective uh, American and French experiments. He doesn't give a concentrated treatment of that, which is a really important topic. 
Um, what way the classics informed the American Revolution and the French revolutionaries. Um, what, but he does have uh, a few chapters where he discusses classical literature and classical education in America. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting moment. I, it's not quite as interesting as it, as it could be if he had written sort of several decades earlier or, or later. Um, he's really focused on the study of Greek and Latin. He does, he does praise the study of Greek and Latin um, as having a kind of elevating effect. Uh, it gives you access to uh, a, a really a, a truly aristocratic vision of the world, truly aristocratic works. You go back to the ancient Roman or Greek historians and philosophers and poets. And so he recommends classical education to Americans and to democratic societies as a, a pseudo aristocratic balance against democratic tendencies. And this is something we see uh, playing out as we continue to level our educational system and our society that we, we need to get rid of the classics. We need to get rid of Latin and Greek right. because they are not only because they're Eurocentric and so on, but because they're, they're difficult. They're just elite. They're elite studies. Yeah. And so it's incompatible. We think with democracy and Tocqueville would say it's precisely because it's not democratic that democracy needs it. We need it as an antidote. Yes. And that's another beautiful juxtaposition with the, with the American experiment is that the, the aim is, equality. And he notices that right off the bat. He's like, this is the most equal place in the world and it's awesome. And, but it was also uh, devised by great men and by, and by extremely well-educated men and by men deeply rooted in the classics and in the ancients. Yeah. Is that, is that, does he notice that? And I mean, cause that's not really how the French revolution went down, right? Yeah. It's, it's certainly not his focus. He, he notices, you could say a kind of common, a sort of ground level version of that in the 1830s, which is you go around uh, into the cabin of an American pioneer in what is then the frontier in Kentucky or something like that. Uh, and you see that they have the Bible and Shakespeare on their shelf and like, they don't have anything else, but they're carrying the Bible and Shakespeare. And he says, and their hatchets and their newspapers sort of out into the wilderness. And that's the American pioneer. And so there's a beautiful passage um, where he discusses meeting uh, meeting some pioneers in a cabin out in the woods. And they are the product, he says, of, you know, 2000 years of, of Western history. And here they are subjecting themselves for a time to all the deprivations of, of the wilderness. The pioneers sort of bearing all of European culture out into the wilderness uh, and encountering the Indian out there, as well as all these natural, natural obstacles. And so he remarks upon how well-educated Americans have been from, from the first colonists and how that still pervades society and how, how ubiquitous works like Shakespeare are and relatively ubiquitous things like knowledge of Latin are. Yeah. That's my great. marketing blood has to jump in here and say that this sounds like Wyoming Catholic college does just that <laughs> out in the world. Yes. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of making that our motto, but I could take, there's a paragraph from Tozel I could take and just plaster it all over campus. Yeah, no, that's it. That's uh it's, it's a uniquely American place. Wyoming Catholic college. Um, so I have so many questions, Pablo's. I don't even know where to start, but um, let's just, let's just ask this one. Uh, is the American revolution over? Uh, I want to say yes, but I might have a different understanding of the American revolution than you. What do you mean by American revolution? 
<laughs> well, okay. So it seems like, well, uh, this is such, a, it's a big question and I, and it might take more time to explain the question than, than actually have a good quick answer on it. But it seems like the French revolution is, well, what's uh, you put on your Rene Girard hat. What's the first revolution? Or your Saul Alinsky hat, right? I guess they both said the same thing. What do they both say? The, Lu- the Luciferian Revolution, the Angelic okay. Revolution. Okay, okay, sure. Yeah. So, uh, in that sense, there's something very wicked about revolutions in 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 a, in a certain sense, right? That mm-hmm. that that it's it's the usurpation of of the the ruled against the just ruler. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you can make the argument that that sort of thing happened in France, mm-hmm. but you can make the argument that Henry VIII sort of did the same sort of revolution. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think you could make the argument with, without you know, pulling a muscle, stretching too hard to make it, <laughs> that, that the American uh, revolution was not necessarily a counter-revolution to that, to that fall, but but attempting to right the wrongs of a very wayward polis. So mm-hmm. that the American revolution has more of a flavor of counter revolution than revolution. So yeah, that's certainly the, a, the first restoration. Premise. I'd say of, I'd, I'd agree with that as the American revolution was instigated by an instinct to restore the rights that had existed and the relationship between the American colonies and King and parliament that had existed. And the argument that unfolds there and the argument that's even even there in the Declaration of Independence uh, in the grievances, if you move past the first couple of paragraphs to get to the very long list of grievances, is that Parliament has started to treat America as if it's England. But yeah. actually, the American colonies all have their own legislatures and they answer to the king. They don't answer to the British Parliament. And so it's as much a revolution against uh, an overly strong legislature in in England, or it's even more so that than a revolution against monarchy or this king in particular. It's because he's cooperated with um, these new imperialistic parliamentarians in uh, in England uh, in the late in the 1770s and 80s, 60s and 70s. Yeah, uh, that that the revolutionaries. So that, that's not the end of the story, right? Because once uh, once we win our independence, or really once we declare independence, we um, rewrite every state constitution or colony constitution, now state constitution. And over those next few decades, there's a great deal of um, experimentation informed by a lot of classical learning. If you think about what Adams was reading, uh, what, Mad- uh, what, what uh, Madison was reading and Hamilton was reading, these are men really steeped in the classics and they're just mining uh, uh, the Roman and Greek historians for cautionary tales to avoid and and good examples to to take, and so. Okay, but but England didn't exactly give up, right? They came came back at us in eighteen twelve, burned mm-hmm. down the White House, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's sort of comparable, I think, uh, is what Khrushchev said in the Cold War, and he's like, "You guys think you're going to win this thing, but we're going to win it, and we're going to we win it from the you. inside without mm-hmm. firing a shot by infiltrating your schools and your your entertainment." Mm-hmm. And that's really what they've done. I mean, the Cold War is kind of the preamble to my original question about about England. Mm-hmm. But the Cold War, you know, who's won that? Is it over? Um, because there's certainly this rot within that's that's very insidiously and very subversively placed to destroy this place. 
Yes. Uh, and I'd, I'd say, I mean, this is, uh, Leo Strauss actually gives this, this argument in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, it's actually, we, we lost, we lost the Germans in the, in the early 20th century, the late 19th century, the early 20th century. Um, the progressive movement, uh, in the, in the worst sense of the progressive movement and it's kind of historicist manifestation, uh, and all, and all the consequences for undermining, um, sort of the doctrine of natural rights that is there at the founding and therefore undermining li- limited government and sort of opening up, opening up what John Dewey advocates in terms of not just education, but, but politics, uh, of this kind of endless experimentation. Dewey writes a work called liberalism and social action. I think it's 1935 in which he, he says that what Francis Bacon did for natural science, we need to do for human society. We need to sort of take every institution and test it. We have to say, oh, the family, that's been around for a long time, but does it actually conduce to human flourishment, flourishing? Let's, let's test it and let's experiment with it. And I think we've just been living in that revolution since. And um, sort of cultural Marxism, I think is what you're, you're pointing to, yeah. uh, you could say is, is a version of that or is just a new iteration of that where um, we think that instead of uh, politics growing out of and, and safeguarding the natural human associations that we have, which I think is what Aristotle and the tradition would argue, um, instead we treat each other and ourselves as radical individuals uh, who, are, who have the whole world before them and are able to and need to be experimented upon and experiment with their own lifestyles to find kind of the yeah, the optimal level of human flourishing. That's the mantra of the day, right? Trust the science. Uh, don't mm-hmm. trust what is what is evident and apparent throughout history and generations right. and, and nature. Yeah, science don't trust nature of, or God. of what is what is being experimented. What the sort of the results of new That's experiments right. the experts That's are right. currently conducting. What is what is what is somebody else em- empirically demonstrated and testified to? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so so that that's the Marxist cultural rot. Um, but it seems like the great enemy right now for the American experiment at its best is globalist takeover. And mm-hmm. obviously this isn't the InfoWars show, um, <laughs> regardless of how you feel about that show. Um, but we are sort of, there's this strange attempt at total amalgamization of the nations and of the people and the mm-hmm. global reduction of the human person uh, into a commodity fit for use. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what's going to be our undoing if anything is. Yeah. It, and Tocqueville does not discuss global globalism exactly, but I think everything we're, we're talking about now, he would recognize as an outgrowth of the things he was worried about. Um, so it's, uh, it's distinctive of aristocratic societies and societies that, uh, especially societies that are concerned with preserving liberty to pay attention to local differences, to pay attention to differences between individual human beings and not say that everyone's alike in every respect, but instead say, well, there might be some basic equality, but actually there are the great and there are the the small and there are uh, the French and there are the Germans. They're all different. We need to recognize their differences if we're going to live well. I think what happens in, in democracy in America, Tocqueville says, because we all see each other as equal, when we look beyond ourselves, all we can see is a great mass of humanity. So we look from the individual to everything, from the individual to humanity as a whole. He says that's a democratic tendency. Um, This is something that we have to guard against because it makes us actually forget our family, our our local community, our, our county, our state, our nation. We want to jump from 
individual to whole, just the smallest constitutive part to the whole. And so I think the trend towards globalism, the trend towards post-nationalism, the trend away from the family as a really integral um, unit of society, and instead just as a number of people who happen to be bound together because of their own free will and not because of something deeper than that. Um, that seems like a particularly advanced uh, disease that comes from democracy in the sense that Tocqueville is worried about democracy. Yeah. Wow. It's simpler, right? It's simpler to just say yes. there's a dot and then there's the rest of the globe as opposed to there's a whole bunch of dots and they're connected in little shapes. And then there's certain other shapes of funny shapes that that comprise countries, and then there's eventually you get to the whole world. It's so and democratic that's so mind brilliant. likes that kind of simplicity. Yeah, I I never thought about that until you said it. That's brilliant. That that America is so individualistic that we can sometimes find ourselves blind to the individual, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's impossible epistemologically. We know it's impossible to love anything in the abstract, mm-hmm. uh, which which I think could be the brilliance behind this. Um, what is the the Chestertonian political movement? What is the word for it? The uh, distributism. Distributism. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, what do you what do you, how do you think this is maybe a, a a bridge too far? But what do you think De Tocqueville would think of distributism as envisioned by Chesterton compared to democracy at its best? Yeah, in a, in a way, if if we think about that as a as an economic system distinct from capitalism and socialism, in a way, what Tocqueville's doing is he's just observing a society that's already distributist. <laughs> if you understand by mm. distributism, um, widely distributed property and, and means of production, um, that's what you have, uh, real, real estate, real property and ability to produce, um, distributed pretty widely throughout society, not so that everyone's forced to be equal, but that everyone's rough, uh, sort of roughly able to be self-dependent. Um, that's what America already is, you know, from this, let's say the 16 teens, the 1830s, the sort of the, the period of time that Tocqueville is concerned with and, and can observe at least parts of America, that there are, there are significant differences between the North and the South. And he kind of privileges um, the free states in the North in his treatment. He just spends more time in them and, and gives more attention to them. Um, they are the more thoroughly democratic version of America than, than the antebellum South. And that seems to be a well-distributed economy. And so he might just say, I'm not recommending one grand economic system over another. I'm just looking at a society that already looks more like that, that's capable of um, healthy democracy because the economy is not as concentrated uh, as it is in other nations. Yeah. Uh, Larissa, you, you probably have a few questions. Yeah, I think you may have, you've been answering around this, but I just want to kind of drive it home a little bit. In the introduction, it says that de Tocqueville was uncertain of God. And then he says this, to wish to stop democracy would then be, sorry, would then appear to be to struggle against God himself. So one, can you reconcile those two things? Um, And it seems like you've already talked around that quite a bit. And then can he, he uses the phrase Christian universe. Mm -hmm. So will a Christian universe naturally be democratic with that in mind? Yeah, those are, those are great questions. I'm going to dodge the first one and just say, I don't know what, what Tocqueville's uh, sort of 
deeply held religious convictions or lack thereof were. Um, I've never gotten the impression that he is, um, he's not committed to atheism. I'm not sure he's committed to Catholicism. He's nominally a Catholic. Um, uh, he, being, he has a little high praise for Protestantism at times. He does. He also has nice things to say actually about at least Catholics. He does. Yeah. He says, he says Catholics basically, uh, what does he say? The first, uh, the, the, basically the Catholics were the first movement of democracy insofar as it leveled the playing field. You could be, mm-hmm. a, you could be a poor slave who all of a sudden is a cleric yeah. that, that, that uh, has some sort of responsibility over royalty. Right. Yeah. But so then that, he says something like Protestants, uh, they made the path to God accessible to everybody. It's like, well, I, I think Catholics <laughs> did that also. But anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he has, so that's getting at sort of Larissa's second question about whether Christianity, or, or in this case, sort of medi- right, medieval Christianity, uh, tends towards or necessarily leads to democracy. Um, t- two comments. So, first, back to the first, he, he this is not a theological work. Um, and whatever his faith or lack thereof, he is trying to just be the observer of the society in front of him. Um, I think it's an an interesting question, but one that I don't know the answer to really, really what was his belief or lack thereof? He seems to have a kind of respect for Catholicism, but he doesn't love it so much or think that it's so important that he's going to infuse his work with it and sort of go out of his way to make comments about how this, this is a violation of or a testament to something that he believes um, in his religious convictions. Uh, on the other hand, the introduction lays out very cl- clearly his really interesting interpretation of history going from the medieval period to the modern, which is that Christianity democratized the West, um, that democracy actually springs from Christianity. I think a fuller version of this uh, this account, if you just sort of add in a few more things that he says elsewhere and in his other works, uh, would be the following. Um, the world and Europe have been aristocratic for a very long time. Uh, they were pagan and aristocratic, and they became Christian, and they remained aristocratic. That may have been uh, sort of going against the tendency of Christianity, because as he says, Christianity recognizes that all men are equal before God. And so we can't help but then extrapolate from that. And, and the tendency, Tocqueville's again, the way he pays attention to democratic logical fallacies is that if one thing's equal, then everything must be equal. And that seems to be what he says about uh, the Christian um, influence on Western history is that it said that we are equal in the most important respect. And it was only a matter of time, maybe centuries, but a matter of time before we started to think we're equal in every respect, even if that's not what Christianity teaches. Um, then what happens in, of course, late and uh, late ancient um, and early medieval times is the German barbarians destroy the Roman Empire, and you get a new hierarchical pagan, then baptized, but um, this kind of warrior barbarian spirit that is very concerned with inequality. And it seems like he he says from the 12th century onwards, every event in French history seems to be tending towards equality. In this work, he doesn't say what happened before the 12th century. And, and my, my guess would be that there is a kind of uh, re-aristocratization of, of the Christian West that was yeah. just becoming Christian with the Roman Empire. And it, so it, it sort of delayed the effect maybe of, of Christianity democratizing the world. But it seems to be the tendency of, of Christianity, at least in his analysis, that once you inject 
um, scripture into history, once you inject the incarnation into history, um, we start to see the dignity of labor, right? This is, this is a, a great thing that, that Catholics in particular love to talk about, um, right? St. Joseph, he's a worker. He dignifies labor. Um, there are all of these examples of the most manual, menial tasks that Aristotle would look down on and say, that's slavish. Uh, instead, Christians say this is in some way redeemed or dignified. Uh, because God himself works and because God became man and so on. Um, it doesn't seem like there's space for that in, in ancient Greece and pagan Greece and pagan Rome. There's the distinction between the free man and the slave man, uh, the slave and the slave is the one who labors and, and works with his hands. Um, it seems like Tocqueville would say, well, Christianity uh, tries to elevate that. It, it uh, elevates every human being. And so it's only a matter of time before um, that elevating, democratizing influence spreads throughout all all aspects of society. Where do you think we go from here, Pavlos, as a democracy? Well, if I put on my Plato hat, I'd say democracy is the second worst form of government, and after that's tyranny. <laughs> um, but I think and that we deserve if it. Look, <laughs> if if you look at, I mean, I've been. Um, teaching a lot in the last few years here at Wyoming Catholic, a lot of Roman historians and, and Greek historians as well as philosophers. And one of the reasons I, I love teaching the historians, the classical historians as well as philosophers is that they show you the, the, all of the chances and the missed chances for, uh, for restoration, all of the partially successful restoration of, some of, of better government that have happened. Give us some of the missed so chances. I, oh, missed chances. Um, I'm thinking now that I'm preparing to teach uh, Rome in the fall and our Roman class is focused on, um, it really centers on the, the rise of the Republic and the Christ of the Republic and, and Caesar's destruction of it. It seems, I mean, I, maybe this is uh, shot in the dark, but it seems like if Brutus and others had, um, had thought better about the state of Rome, Shakespeare's Julius Caesar is a great, a great example of, of all the, miscalculations that they made and understanding the corruption of the Roman people, they may have been actually been able to save something like Republican government for some longer period of time if they had not assumed the capacity for Republican government in the Roman people in 44 BC. Maybe that hmm. sounds like a paradox, but it seems to me like the, at least in, in Plutarch's treatment and in Shakespeare's treatment as well, which comes from Plutarch, um, Brutus, the, one of the lead conspirators who kills Julius Caesar, just simply assumes that it's going to be possible once you kill the tyrant or potential tyrant or supposed tyrant, uh, then the Republic will just sort of spring back into action fully for it. And it seems like instead, actually, if, if he had had a more realistic view of, of history, of where he was in history, um, he and the other conspirators may have uh, either cooperated with Caesar in some way and, and preserved Republican government for longer, or even if they kill Caesar, um, may have um, uh, also killed Mark Antony. This is uh, this is a, a great missed opportunity. Why don't you kill Mark Antony at the same time as Caesar? Um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here on the podcast to advocate for murder, uh, but I'm just I'm just thinking out loud here. That, that seems like a missed opportunity to uh, preserve a better form of government for a longer period of time, maybe only for a few generations. Um, it seems to me, returning to your question, that there's still a lot of uh, virtue in America, as well as degradation. Um, 
that there's still a lot of potential to reassert uh, local self-government and self-reliance and reliance in, in small communities. And what needs to happen is action. What, what needs to happen actually, I, I love talking about, about these issues, um, but what needs to happen is not more discussions of, of localism uh, or of federalism, but actually uh, to act on our beliefs and yeah. say, we, we're going to reassert uh, the semi-sovereignty of our local of our local communities. We're going to reassert um, those institutions that protect that exist to protect the family and the church and our local our local communities. Um, and we're going to again uh, legal in, in a in, through law and through politics fight against the forces that are trying to erode the conditions for the good life. And we only deserve. I guess the thing I'd say is. Um, we come to deserve tyranny if we don't make that effort. Uh, if we make the effort yes. and succeed, then we have, by that very fact, proven that we deserve to govern ourselves because we've shown that we can, again, I'm not talking about guns and bullets, but uh, sort of legally and politically fight for it and, and retain it. Yeah. And you think that's possible? I do. I don't, I don't know whether it will be until it's tried. And so I think it's possible to try and it's, it's I mean, it better noble. be right. We all have kids. I mean, I mean, it's it's now or never. And I'm always That's encouraged right. by this quote, uh, not to get too theological, but there's a uh, in Maria Faustina's diary, our Lord says to her, take courage. The world is not as strong as it seems. Very good. And it really isn't. It's a it's a paper tiger. You know, the. uh and it can be scary. You know, you see the tyrants all over in the world and locking everybody down for COVID and, mm-hmm. and uh, taking the guns away. And we're like, whoa, it's coming, you know, and it is coming. But at the same time, the lightest breeze of reality can just topple these people and stop them in their tracks. So whatever that's why education, I think, is where the fight's at right now. And education is also a great example. And this is not just your institution, but charter schools and, and many others, but it also includes Albertus Magnus. Education is a great example of how Americans have been building their own institutions for a long time. And so that entrepreneurial spirit of I'm going to create my own school um, is a great testament to the fact that we can take individual action, local action, collective action on a small scale and build something that's worth worth building. Yeah. And we had no idea this thing was going to work. And it's like, we got what, like 800, 900 fellows in a year and a half, Larissa. I mean, the demand is just through the roof. And that's, that's why, you know, we're trying to keep up with the pace of the demand right now. So it's a good problem. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say in the beginning, when you read his quote, one of the things he listed is peaceful habits. So, John, when you said the lightest breeze will knock it out, you know, we, we don't all have to go into politics to save America. It's in the family and it's an education and it's the habits we teach our children and we do ourselves. It is. And these people aren't having any kids. I mean, it's it's known, right? Even the the the, the greatest tyrants. That's the scary thing is that they kind of want to blow it up before they go out. That's the boomer curse, right? They're mm-hmm. like, we're, we're going to destroy this thing that we destroyed so nobody else can enjoy it. Take their ball and go home. That is the mm-hmm. world. Um, but at the same time, they're not reproducing. Right. And, and I think, I think we are, and they're not even doing as good of a job reproducing artificially in the classroom anymore as they used to. Right. And we're doing a better job of that. So yeah. thanks to you, Pavlos, keep it up, man. And you to you. 
You got a book you want to plug or something? I mean, how can we support you? I don't have a book. I, uh, I'm just going to go back to, to my college and say, check out Wyoming Catholic College, um, whatever your age or stage of life. Um, it's a community that I genuinely am privileged uh, to be a member of and love being a member of. So, um, yeah, send us your children so we can educate them. Yeah. Or come yourself uh, for our adult education program. What's the pro remind we did a podcast on this thing too, with uh, Zimmer, but what's, what's the, uh, the adult program. If you want to, if you, if you're just uh, a parent or somebody wants to go out and check out Wyoming Catholic for a summer. Yeah. What is that thing called the great adventure or something? There's a, there's a few things. So um, Tom Zimmer runs core, uh, which is our sort of outdoor program, which has all kinds of opportunities to do, um, really a variety in terms of length and, and format of outdoor trips. So you can, I mean, they run, they run programs for high schoolers. They run programs for seminarians. They run sort of father, son, or, or mother, daughter, uh, trips or whole family trips. So you can, um, plug into one of their, uh, pre-made programs or work with them to design something that would work for you, your friends, your family, your parish group, whatever it is, your school, um, and they go up into some of the most beautiful parts of the country in the mountains um, and deserts and, and, and rivers and have a really wonderful experience of immersion in God's first book, nature, um, of experiencing the beauty of the world, of the, of the wilderness, uh, and also of having, it de- again, depends on what you design or what you sign up for, um, sort of meditative experiences. You can celebrate ma- mass out in the Rocky Mountains, all these, all these beautiful things. We also have... Um, in addition to the outdoor program that happens all, all through the year and in different ways, uh, every summer, the college puts on something called the Wyoming School of Catholic Thought. It's just one week, um, usually in June. So it's, it's happening very soon this year. It's too late to sign up this year, but it's on a different theme every year. And there's a variety of professors who come around around this theme. We read uh, great works or selections from great works on the theme, and you get a sense of what it's like to learn from and alongside our professors. And so that's a great experience if if you're not of college age or if you're thinking about yourself and not just your your children, uh, you could come have a uh, sort of intensive week-long experience of education and community and going up into the into the mountains uh, and learning together. Yeah. And the best thing about Wyoming Catholic, no cell phones. That's correct. Nobody's looking a- down. At, you walk into a cafe, everybody looks you in the eye. We're it's trying like, to give a human education to human It beings. is a throwback to humanity. That's right. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can bring a gun to school, but not a, not a, I guess I can't say that now, right? That's bad timing. Uh, <laughs> that is, you, that is what the t-shirts say here. You yeah, don't need college, school, you can... but not a cell phone. So that's right. <laughs> yeah. I love America. So thank you, Pavlos Papadopoulos. This was, this was great. We're so excited to have you teaching in the Magnus Fellowship. De, uh, Tocqueville's Demar- you, you don't say the D by the way, what's up with that? Are we supposed to say the D? I'm American, so I just say just I say, say Tocqueville, Tocqueville instead of Alexis de Tocqueville. Okay, I just so, say Tocqueville. <laughs> okay, so take uh, Pavlos's class with Alex Tocqueville coming up <laughs> <laughs> in the Magnus Fellowship, uh, running through Fourth of July. You guys have that day off, but it'll be it'll be great timing, and mm-hmm. we'll be sure to feature some of those course excerpts on the podcast as well. So. I have- had a Tiffany Schubert for us, the other Magnus fellow out there. She did a great job. I hope she enjoyed it. It was probably brutal on her. What do you think? She did. She she did. did. I okay, asked her about it recently, and she did. Yeah, we paired her with Patrick Downey to teach a class, and it was like two worlds collided, polar opposites. But I think <laughs> I think it was great. I think it was great. So Good. anyway, uh, Larissa, 
Thanks for making me do this. It's my pleasure. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I really enjoy it. And thanks for the beers, Pavlos. We'll see Cheers. you in person, hopefully sometime soon. Okay. Looking forward to it. Thank Great. you. Magnusinstitute.org for more. See you guys later. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2022, Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.